If you're new with us, my name is Landon, and I'm the pastor here at Restoration Church, and uh, we're thankful to have you joining with us this morning. Uh, I'd love the, the opportunity to get to, to meet you and get to know a little bit of your story after the service, if possible. Also, some of you saw me walking with some crutches or hobbling around right now. I am not seriously injured. I was just attempting to play basketball, and my attempt did not go very well, so... I'm on crutches for a few days, but it's all good. A couple announcements real quick before we dive in to, uh, to God's word. The first being, some of you know Justin Unger. He is a, a good friend and, and mentor of mine, and he's on our management team. So the way the leadership of our church works is that we have six men on our management team until the time we get local elders placed. And we are in the process of meeting with elder candidates, and it's been a joy to do so. I think that will um, be established in this next season before too long. But until then, and really after, uh, management team has just been an amazing blessing, coaching, um, oversight of godly men. And so Justin's one of those. He'll be leading worship for us um, next Sunday. I'm excited to, to have him here with us just selfishly because he's a good friend and um, I love spending time with him, but also he'll be a blessing to you as well. And then Justin also leads what we've talked about before, which is called the Likewise Worship Collective, and it's training up worship leaders and, and sending them out really all over the nation, and it keeps expanding from state to state. And so he'll be sharing some of that vision um, for Likewise during a concert here on Sunday night at 6 p.m., Next Sunday. So leading worship for us during our normal services and then um, come back and hang out at 6 p.m. To, to enjoy that concert and more worship together, but then also to hear about this vision that I think is really worthy of our support. And so we do support likewise financially as a church, but for you to get to hear, not from me, but from Justin, I think would be something that's really worthy of your time and will be a blessing to you as well. Lastly, I've talked, I'm just going to call this like my baby train announcement for the next month or so. I think we've had about three babies born so far. Um, one healthy in, in the hospital right now, Whitney's baby, which is really exciting, and another that'll be there later tonight. We should have just done church maybe at the hospital. Maybe next week, we'll see. But this is exciting, so I'd encourage you to, to pray. Um, to praise God for the healthy birth so far, for support and, and his mercy and grace and peace over the, the babies yet to come. Um, what a gift from our God. And so I want us to surround our, our church family in prayer as, as their individual families are growing. So uh, with that in mind, we did not do confession this morning. If you noticed and you're with us normally, we do uh, share in a time of confession every week. However, since I'm a little bit hobbled and getting up and down is not smooth, I decided we're going to do confession at the beginning of the sermon instead, simply so I don't have to get up and down. So this is what we do every week. Our desire is to follow God and to become human the way he's made us to be as he transforms us, as his power in us. And so once a week, every Sunday we come in and we sit down, we're just going to have a moment of silence, which hopefully functions as a gift to you to just reflect on the last week. The, the ways that God has created you to be human and, and the different roles you play as a, as a mom, as a wife, as an employee, an employer, for me as a, a husband and a father. We want to assess our past week, our Monday to Saturday and go, in what ways did we miss that mark? And then we freely bring that before Jesus, recognizing that he always forgives and that his power, the same power that rose him from the dead is in you to transform and to, to 
help you become who he's made you to be. So in this next minute or so of silence, take that opportunity to confess and present um, our sin before him. Let's do that now. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you have a design and a plan that is perfect for each of us for this world. God, and we recognize that we often miss the mark, that we fall short. So we present that before you. We thank you for your forgiveness, God. Not just ask for it, but we thank you that you forgive and that that's your promise. And that you don't stop there, but you've promised to work in us. And so we lay our lives before you. We submit to you. Work in us mightily. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in the uh, third week now of our, our series called Streams, and the idea behind this series is this. I don't know about you, but there's certainly been seasons in my life, and I'm assuming you've experienced some as well, where you just wonder where God is, where it seems as if he's not there or not working as if he's just maybe even distanced himself. And, and maybe you've even pondered things like maybe it's my fault or you've done certain things and you need to make up for it. And we, we try to go, God, where are you? What are you doing? And we wonder. And certainly throughout the scriptures, we see that there's seasons God does distance himself. And he uses that to teach us to be dependent on him. Yet we also see that as mankind, we have a tendency to simply look in the wrong places. We, we like to play the... The, the game by our own rules. And so we say, hey, God, here's the time and place. Meet me there. And he goes, no, 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 you've got this backwards. I'm the one that is God, not you. And I have the plan that is perfect and whole and right. And so here's where you will find me. And so maybe today you're, you're in a season where you're going, God, where are you? Uh, the whole idea behind the stream series is that we see consistencies, patterns throughout the scriptures where God says, you will find me and these places and these actions and this lifestyle with these spiritual disciplines or rhythms, we're going to call them streams because a stream is a body of water that has movement and our job is simply to dive into those waters and then he moves them. That's the, the power and the beauty of God's grace and love. We just go and then he does the work and he transforms and he's, he's mighty and he's good. And so last week we talked about the stream, the practice of repentance. And that in repentance, God will be found there. That he works and he moves. And we talked about really a kind of a three-step plan or tool for repentance. The first is confession and awareness. If I'm lost, the first thing I have to do is recognize that I am lost and to confess that. And that as we confess, the more specific we are, the more helpful and freeing it's going to be. It's one thing to think and to know what I've done wrong. It's another to maybe write it out or to speak it audibly. And the, the, the more specific we are, the more freedom you're going to find. And I think healing as God transforms from that. 
But to know you're lost isn't enough because you're still lost, even if you know it. So the next step is you have to turn from the old way, the sin, the pattern of behavior that's not in line with God's intent. And then the third step is to actually turn to what God's intent is. We talked about this idea that we read a lot about punishment in the scriptures and God's wrath. But, but here's the thing. His wrath or punishment is not just wrath or punishment for the sake of wrath and punishment. It is founded on love. God's desire for us to repent is him calling out saying, why do you keep doing that or doing this when I have something that is so much better for you right here? In the context of relationships and work and culture and collaboration with the city, he's saying, stop doing that. This isn't a test, but I've designed you for this. And so when we view it that way, repentance actually becomes this beautiful, good word. That means return because you're loved. And so we want to dive into the stream of repentance. This morning, we're going to be talking about hospitality. It's one of the the practices, spaces, rhythms. Again, we'll call it a stream where God says, you'll find me here. I I want to read out of Isaiah chapter 58, 6 through 11. and, And you'll see that God himself says this. Isaiah, the prophet, is speaking on behalf of God to his people, to his nation. And they're kind of having, having one of those seasons where they're saying, God, where are you? Why aren't you here? And here's what Isaiah says on behalf of God. Isn't the fast I choose to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see them, and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? Then your light will appear like the dawn, and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you, and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. At that time, when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry out, he will say, here I am. Those are three really good words to hear from God. Here I am. If you get rid of the yoke among you, the finger pointing and malicious speaking, and if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will shine in the darkness and your night will be like noonday. The Lord will always lead you, satisfy you in a parched land and strengthen your bones. You will be like a watered garden and like a spring whose waters never run dry. You will cry out and the Lord will say, here I am. That makes hospitality important. That's in the Old Testament. Maybe you go, though, does it, does it matter in the New Testament? What does Jesus have to say about it? He takes it really seriously, maybe frighteningly serious. I want to read to you what Jesus says in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And this, too, has to do with hospitality. Jesus says, when the Son of Man, which is Jesus, comes in his glory to be king, to restore this world to what his intent was, to rule forever... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another. Just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's something good that I think we all want to hear. And then he, then he lets us know who will hear it. For I was hungry, Jesus says, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, I assure you. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me either. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will inherit eternal life. Jesus takes hospitality, taking care of those in need, those who are strangers or different. Jesus takes loving people and valuing them really seriously. I want to go ahead and and start our conversation on hospitality with a a definition provided by Joanne Jung in her book, Knowing Grace. She defines hospitality this way. Hospitality is the grateful response to God's extension of saving grace in indiscriminate acts of generosity and friendship towards strangers, fellow image bearers of God, while expecting nothing in return. That is a very loaded and packed Definition, because there's a lot there. I want to just break it down a little bit. Here's the first key. The grateful response. Hospitality is not something we just do in and of ourselves or by our own effort. Rather, it's a response of gratitude to God's great love. The grateful response to God's extension of saving grace, which we did nothing to earn or deserve. And the response is in the form of indiscriminate, doesn't discriminate to all people, acts of generosity and friendship towards strangers, those who are different than us, who are fellow image bearers of God, while expecting nothing in return, which in the midst of our culture is really weird because we always expect something in return. The, the word hospitality shares the same root word as a few other words like hostile, which has this connotation of something foreign something you defend against. It shares the same root word as the word hospital, where sick people are. That's who we're to care for, those who are different, where there's something foreign that we're not used to. You you can't really have hospitality, actually, without it being someone different than you. Yet for a lot of us, we're most comfortable with those that are most similar to us. The opposite of hospitality is to be defensive or indifferent, to not care, to be focused on self and my kingdom. We also need to understand that there's a difference in maybe how you define modern hospitality or Christ-like or biblical hospitality. Modern hospitality, you can think of Airbnb or going to a hotel. Hopefully when you go, it feels warm and safe, comfortable, inviting. But the idea is that then you write a good review or give a good rating, and there's an exchange. In exchange for that hospitality, you're paying a price. And so Airbnb or the host is going to make a profit, hospitality in exchange for something, which isn't bad. 
But Christ-like or biblical hospitality is different. It's hospitality that expects nothing in return. Think about that. That doesn't happen in our culture. How often does somebody expect nothing in return? But, but in the midst of a world seeking to build our own kingdoms, for somebody to give graciously, to give the best we have to offer with nothing, with expecting nothing in return, is a signpost of the coming kingdom of Jesus, and it looks really good. It looks inviting. And the only reason we're capable of this love is because we have been so loved by Jesus. Out of the overflow of his love, then we can love and expect nothing in return. Leviticus 19, 33 through 34 paints this picture as well. The context of, of this passage is that Israel has just been saved by God from slavery and brokenness and brutality. They've called out and God has answered. He's redeemed them out of Egypt. He's provided a land. This is going to be their home. And Leviticus paints a picture for what life should look like there. And so God says this. When a foreigner lives with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You must regard the foreigner who lives with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. I, I want to start our conversation on Leviticus with two points. The first is this. This is written thousands of years ago in a different culture and context to a different people. And so this is not a 100% transferable foreign policy for us. But it relates to foreign policy. This doesn't say, here's what we need to do simply. That needs to be understood. But the second point is this. This is a 100% transferable call to the posture our hearts should have towards people. And that will affect foreign policy. So this doesn't say, here's what we need to do as a country. But it does say, here, as individuals that make up a church, is the heart posture we are called to have as we seek to love people whom God has valued so much so that he gave up his life for them. And there's a few points I want to bring out from this passage. First one is that we're called to love strange people, foreign people, different people, people that we're not used to, people that maybe we don't spend time with. Here's what but, um, Yahweh God says, when a foreigner lives with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You must regard the foreigner who lives with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. So who is a foreigner? Who is strange? It's just someone that's different than us. And there's lots of things that can make them different. It could be socioeconomic background, how your family functions. It can be skin color, political view, philosophies on different things, beliefs, religion. These are things that make people different. But what we're called to do is love those who are different. In Matthew 22, 36 through 40, uh, Jesus puts it this way. He's asked, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend, hang on these two commands. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus defines neighbor for us too. And it's not somebody like you. It's anybody. It's your enemies. It's the people that have a different religion than you. It's people that have a philosophy that irritates you. It's the least you would expect. That's who Jesus says we're called to love. We're called to love people different than us. 
A couple weeks ago, my friend Jesse um, showed me this book called Prayer. It's by Justin McRoberts and Scott Erickson. And it has these little, like, one phrase prayers in it with a picture next to it. It's really a good book. I'd encourage you to get it if you have any interest. Um, I took a picture of it to put it on the screen for you. There's different prayers. I'm going to show you a few throughout this morning. But I'm not very good at that. So you're just going to get the words. So buy the book. There's a few prayers, though, that I think really fit into this idea of changing our heart posture to love people. The first is this. It begins with, may I cease to be annoyed. There we go. May I cease to be annoyed that others are not as I wish they were, since I am not as I wish I was. That's a good start to our heart posture. May I cease to be annoyed that others are not as I wish they were since I am not as I wish I was. The second says this. Nope, it should, uh, before I see someone as a problem, may I see him or her as a human being. That doesn't say that some people aren't problems. They are. We are. All of us. But before I see them as a problem, in my prioritization, may I see him or her as a human being. This addresses heart posture. The third one we'll go to now. Nope. Sorry, Pablo. I must have them out of order. What is it? Even in conflict, may I see people as beloved instead of problematic. Again, that doesn't fix the conflict. The conflict's real. But even in that conflict, may I see people as beloved because God has called them beloved, not as problematic. Second thing that we see out of Leviticus 19 is that they were called to love strangers, to love foreigners because they were loved while they were foreigners and strangers by God. Listen to This passage again, when a foreigner lives with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You must regard the foreigner who lives with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. God is saying, don't forget who you are and where you came from, because it's I that saved you. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says something similar to us. He reminds us of our identity. He says this, for while we were still helpless, I love that word, because we're all helpless apart from God. While we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners rebelling against him, Christ died for us. That is beautiful. Christ did not die for you because you're a good person or because you give some money or say some prayers or anything of that sort. He died for us because he loved you in the midst of your rebellion against him, in the midst of us yelling, crucify him, crucify him, and walking against him and saying, God, thanks, but no thanks. That is the moment, the appointed moment, when the Christ gave up his life for you. And so because you've been loved in this way, we are then called to love. Out of the overflow of love we've been given we are called to love. And her, her book, Knowing Grace, that I mentioned earlier, Joanne Jung, talks about hospitality. and She says it this way. Biblical hospitality is not a been there, done that deal. This would just amount to something done in our own power and for our own purposes. Be sure to ponder the truth that God first extended his divine friendship to us when we were sinners. Unlovable, unworthy, and objects of his wrath. 
But because of Christ, the Father invited us in and things are different. We are different. Be alert and sensitive and then obedient to God's spirit so that his prompting to extend friendship to a stranger will not be ignored or suppressed. And in 1 John 3, 1, it's put this way. Look at how great a love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called God's children and that is what we are. There's this theme. It's not because of anything we've done, but we've been loved. There's no greater hospitality than this. The ultimate hospitality is a divine hospitality offered from the Father that is permanent and eternal, that we would be adopted as children of God, that we would be welcomed into his home, and that offer is not taken away. So because we've been brought into God's family, then we're called to love like he does, to take on the character of the family. Not because love is in us, because it's just natural, but because Christ is in you and his love will overflow. We were loved with nothing to offer. We didn't have anything to offer when Jesus gave his life for us. And so we love expecting nothing in return. Again, that speaks in the midst of a culture that's always looking for something in return. A couple more prayers from this book that I think are helpful. Uh, the first says, may the depth of my generosity never be swayed by the depth of the thanks I receive. If you're giving or helping or being hospitable and you're irritated or you just want to do this so that you receive thanks and, and praise for it, then you're, you're not actually being Christ-like hospitable or biblically hospitable. You're being worldly hospitable. You want something in exchange for it. Just fine, but they're, they're two different things. The, the next prayer says this. May my value for this world and the people in it extend far beyond the uses I have for them. See, this is about the heart. Our heart posture needs to change. How we view people needs to change. And it only can when we realize that we've been loved freely and God didn't ask for anything from us. And so then we can love and not ask for anything in return. Here's the third thing we get from this passage. You are to love him, the foreigner, as yourself. That's pretty steep, if we're honest at all, because we all love ourselves a whole lot. So this isn't a, hey, once a month, I'm going to do something nice for somebody so I can check it off my spiritual to-do list. We already saw in Matthew, Jesus doesn't care about your spiritual to-do list and your religiosity and, and doing good things. That's not what it's about. Rather, he's saying, this is who you are. So out of the overflowing of the love I've given you, love. And love people as you would love yourself. Like, that's a, that's a lot of love. And then lastly, listen to the end of the passage. When a foreigner lives with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You must regard the foreigner who lives with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. Now there's this identity. Here's what's happening. The Israelite people, just like you and I, are really, 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 incredibly, amazingly, astonishingly good at forgetting who is God and who is not. Like, we're really good at trying to play the role of God and forgetting. And so if you read all of uh, Leviticus 19, you should do it later. It's really fascinating. After every commandment, he says, I am Yahweh, your God. In case you forgot in the last three sentences, you're not God and I am. And that's the best thing for you. And so here's what we realize in this. You are loved perfectly by this God. But this call to hospitality is not optional. 
You're a part of the family. And so as part of the family, you are called to act like the family. Not because you have to, but because you've been loved so much. This is now just who we are and what we do. We really, in our Christian circles, and our, our modern-day culture, we love Jesus as our Savior because none of us want to go to hell. But we struggle to love Jesus as our Lord sometimes. And in this instance, he's saying, I am Yahweh, your God. I am your Lord and your Savior. I am your King and your Savior. And so this is the call that we have as the church, which leads us to, to some application. If we want to be hospitable, if we want to love people, how do we do that? What are some things that keep us from it? The, the first thing that we need to do is change the default question that we ask when we uh, interact with people. I'm pretty convinced, and I think if you're honest, the first question that comes to mind, we might not like actually say this in the voice in our head and hopefully not out loud, um, but this is a premise that from a very young age, if you grew up in this culture, we have. It's an economy of, of exchange relationally. So you meet somebody and we start to wonder, what will they offer me in return? What can I get from this person? And if you don't believe me, drive down the road and just look at advertisements or go on your phone and find advertisements, newspapers, articles, whatever it is. Wherever there's advertisements, here's what's happening. They say, look at what we can offer you. And so you're trained to go, if I go to this company, if I do this thing, if I buy from this person, here's what I will receive. And so over time, there's this accumulative effect where here's your default. Your default is always asking, my default our default is always asking, what can you do to serve and love me? And what we have to do is change the defaults, which is going to be hard and annoying work that's going to take a long time. We've been trained to say that. Instead, we need to go, how can I love and serve you? That's a different question. That's a question that doesn't make sense to our culture and only makes sense because we've been loved so greatly and permanently by Jesus. Now, I've used this analogy before, but when I coach basketball, which I should probably stick to so I don't get hurt, some of the, the kids won't have good form and their elbow will pop out, which you don't want to happen when you're shooting. And so sometimes if they keep this up, I'll just stand next to them and I'll just keep smacking that elbow again and again every time. We'll just sit there all day, hundreds of times until they finally learn every time this pops out, nope, it stays here. Pops out, nope, it stays here. Again, 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 repetition. Because once you've formed a habit, it's really hard to break it. And I know my habit is that default question. What can you do to serve or love me? And so we have to work hard. We, ask to ask, we have to ask Jesus to transform that habit in us. In our uh, meeting with the elder candidates I, I referenced earlier, Aaron, one of them, brought up three great points. He, he kind of coined it in this way. He said there's, I think, three fears that will keep people from being hospitable. And so I want to talk about those. The first is this. The fear of being known. It's about vulnerability. The, the reality is that many of us fear being known because we've worked really hard in our lives to build up walls. Physical walls and spiritual and relational walls. Physical walls and that, man, we've got home security systems and I bet a ton of you have video cameras at your front door and, and all like garages, gated entries, which none of that is bad, but it does say something about our values and probably for good reason. But what we have to do is be careful that that doesn't work into our heart. Because if our security and safety becomes more important than people, I'm not saying be foolish. Security and safety is good. But if we prioritize that over loving people, there's probably some questions we should ask. 
We, we've also built walls relationally and, and personally. We don't want people to know our struggles and insecurities and issues. In fact, culture says the opposite. Don't let anybody know, fake it until you make it. Just keep going and grinding and grinding and doing because eventually you'll get to the top. That's the message. You can't let them know you have weakness, which is totally contrary to the gospel. Like we're all in here in this room together seeking Jesus because we have weakness and we need to depend on him. So we have to get over that. But it's real. If we fear being known, that's going to keep us from being hospitable. Fearing being known will prioritize security over connection. It'll prioritize comfort over community. And it'll prioritize me over us. And so if your priorities fall in that way, then it's probably good to just ask yourself some questions about that. Because here's the thing. You've been loved perfectly and permanently and adopted into the family of God. And he knows every little nasty thing about all of us. And in the midst of that, that's when he died for you. So it's okay. Second fear is the fear of knowing. Because here's the reality. If I know what's going on in your life, then to a degree, I'm going to feel responsibility. If I know that you're going through this, then I'm going to take that on me a little bit. Or I have to actually acknowledge how selfish I am and that I don't really care because I'm too busy caring about self. There's a fear of knowing. The fear of knowing will keep us from being hospitable. Because it's not a matter of if it will get messy. It's people. So it will get messy. But God promises to be with you through the midst of that. Which leads us to our third fear. The fear of not knowing how to help. The fear of not knowing how to help. Here's the good news in this. Jesus calls you to love, to be like him. To be hospitable, to, to love those we know and are like and to love those that are different than us. He calls you to be there, to jump into the stream and to watch him transform. But he does not call you to be savior. He's the only one that's savior. He calls you to express his name and be the conduit of grace, but to point people to him. And so you are not responsible for saving. You're not responsible for the work and the Holy Spirit is with you and Christ is united with you. We'll talk about that when we take communion later. The, the fear of not knowing how to help is real. You probably don't and you probably can't. But Christ is in you and he can and he will. So what's our, our takeaway today as we wrap up? It's this. God loved people. God loves people. God calls us to be hospitable, to value them simply because they're people, to risk, to care, to be hospitable, to be good listeners, to invite them into our homes, to interact, to get over our fear of being known, our fear of knowing and our fear of not knowing how to help, to change the default question. But if there's one takeaway, it'd be value people. I don't know if you ever drive down the road or you're walking and you see a really nice car and you go, wow, I wonder how valuable that car is. I wonder how much it's worth or how much it costs. What we should actually be doing is wondering about the value of people. Wondering, not in terms of questioning, like I don't know how valuable they are, how valuable they are. No, we know how valuable they are and we should wonder at the fact that they are so valuable Jesus gave up his life for them in the midst of their sin and rebellion. In the midst of them walking away from Jesus, Jesus said, you are that valuable that I'm going to give up my life for you. We should wonder 
about everybody's value. As you're walking down the street and you see somebody, wonder that Jesus loves them that much. And somebody cuts you off on the road, wonder that Jesus loves that person that much. That person that you can't even stand, wonder that they are a, a loved child of God. And I joked last week, or last sermon, like, you might be like, really, Jesus? Not that person. It can't be. No, that person too. Everybody. People in front of you at the line at the grocery store, the teller at the bank, people on the road next to you, the people closest to you, your enemies, people that don't like you, people that like you wonder at how much they're loved. Because if we can change how we perceive people, how we value them, not for exchange, but simply because God loved them. And we've been loved, so we don't have to expect anything in return. When we offer love, hospitality can then become a reality. May we be a people who value others. May we be a people, that's what church is, right? A people who are united in our following of Jesus. May we be a people who value people like that, who wonder at the value, the price tag that Jesus has placed on others. I want to go ahead and close by reading Romans 12 to you. And the reason I want to do this is that it's just purely God's words, none of my words, but I feel like it summarizes our call to love, our call to be hospitable, the fact that Jesus will meet you there and transform you. And the good news, that he will be the one doing the work, it's not us. So no need to read it with me, but just sit and listen and soak this in. Paul says this, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the standard of one's faith. If service, in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving, with generosity. Leading, with diligence. Showing mercy, with cheerfulness. Love must be without hypocrisy. Detest evil, cling to what is good. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. What a beautiful command. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath, for it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Christ in you will do that. Let's pray. Father, you are good and your love surpasses understanding. 
We long to know you, to experience you, to be with you. Give us power to grasp that love. And as it overflows in us, as you give freely, Father, may it overflow to others in abundance. May you give us courage to be hospitable, to overcome our fears of being known, of knowing, and of not knowing how to help. Lead us. Guide us. May your love flow through us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're with us for the first time, we continue to to worship every Sunday uh, in our response. And the first way that we respond is through reflection. So I encourage you to reflect on what kind of hospitality who God is calling you to be hospitable towards this week and in the, the coming weeks and what it would look like for you to practice wondering about people's value. I had mentioned this book uh, throughout the next minute or two as you reflect. I'm going to put not the images but some of the prayers from this book um, that I had put as slides earlier up for you. I'll give you like 10 seconds per slide just to read through that and pray it for yourself that God would shift the posture of our hearts so that we can love without expecting anything in return. Another way that we worship is by taking communion. We do this every week because we recognize that it's God's grace alone that has transforming power. And so as we take the bread and we dip it into the cup, you're realizing that what you're consuming symbolizes the power of Christ in you. His blood that was shed, his body that he allowed to be broken, crushed. But it didn't stay that way. And that same power that rose him from the dead is in you. You are united with Christ, and it's that power that allows us to be the church, to carry his name, to see broken stories becoming beautiful, to be a conduit of grace. So take courage in the midst of the craziness of life that Christ is with you as you take communion, whether individually or with your family or maybe your community and your group here at Restoration. And then lastly, we respond in worship by giving. So there's two boxes for giving in the back of the room or in the card in the seat back in front of you. There's instructions on how you can give online. Let's continue to worship now in our response.